Hey, and welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. We are a church that is for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. We are passionate about helping people become fully devoted followers of Jesus. So if you're just joining us for the first time, we would love for you to check out our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. There you can find ways to connect with us and see what's happening at Crosspoint. Now, let's listen to this week's Sunday message. Well, good morning, Crosspoint. It is so great to be with you today. If we haven't met yet, like Micah said, my name is Delaney, and I have the privilege of serving as the children's pastor at Crosspoint. And as much as I love getting to disciple your kids on Sunday mornings, their discipleship is very high energy. Uh, And you know, that's great for the activity rings on my watch, but it is less great for my self-esteem when your kids inform me that I look really sweaty. (laughs) They're so honest all the time. Before we go further today, let me just remind you that the notes for today's message are at thecrosspointchurch.ca slash notes, and you can use those to follow along as we begin a new series on the book of Ruth. Now, the timing for this series in Ruth was intentional because, as we will soon discover, this book takes place in a world that's similar in many ways to our own world. Their world, it was lost and polarized, filled with division and disobedience, overcome by people who failed to live according to God's perfect intended will. It was a world that begged the question, how could God possibly be present here? But we know that God weaves his scarlet thread of redemption through the history of his people. We know that he was present in Ruth's world, and he is present in our world today. So instead, we approach this series with the assumption that God is working. We simply get to look at the text and look at our lives to discover how. So let's start our morning together with a sword drill. I'm kidding. Most of you have a smartphone, and that makes sword drills not fun. Uh, So instead, let's just non-competitively turn to Ruth chapter 1 together, starting at verse 1. Ruth chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The text says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So if you're ever looking for a terrible way to begin a story, this would be it. You know, of all the characters in the Bible, Naomi has one of the most tragic backstories. Because in the span of five verses, her entire life is ruined. The first line of the first verse tells us that Naomi's story takes place in the days when the judges ruled which is, of course, referring to the time period that we read about in the book of Judges. This was an entire era defined by war, 
violence, and repeated instances of Israel's disobedience. The last line of Judges says that in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit, which, as I'm sure you can imagine, worked out really well for them. You know, there's a basic pattern that we see repeating throughout all of Judges. The people of Israel sin. God sends enemies against them. The people cry out for help. God raises up a judge to deliver them. And then the people of Israel sin again. The same pattern, it repeats for 400 years. So if you ever feel like your kids aren't listening to you or learning from their mistakes, at least they're not as bad as Israel. This era of the judges, it's not an ideal setting for a feel-good story. But to make it even more idyllic, there was also a famine in the land. It may have been caused by Israel's enemies destroying their crops or because of a drought in the land. But either way, a famine was generally understood as a sign of God's judgment against Israel. The people had failed to uphold their side of the covenant that they had made with God, and there were consequences for that. The irony in today's story is that the famine had extended to Bethlehem in Judah. And Bethlehem literally translates to house of bread. There was no bread left in the house of bread. So Naomi's husband, Elimelech, decided that it would be best to leave Bethlehem in search of a land with more food. The whole family, they went on a little road trip together and ended up settling in the land of Moab. Now this move is significant because Moab was a traditional enemy of Israel. It is referred to in scripture as a wash basin, which is what would have been used to wash dirty feet. It shouldn't have been on a travel bucket list for any of the Israelites, particularly because the Moabites worshipped other gods and participated in child sacrifice. Not only that, but leaving Bethlehem meant forfeiting participation in the assembly of the Lord. There was nowhere in Moab where Israelites could go to worship Yahweh. The country was known to be a spiritual wasteland. And yet this is where Elimelech chose to seek refuge. He brought his family from Bethlehem to Moab, from the breadbasket to the wastebasket. And it is in Moab that the tragedy of Naomi's life really takes shape. See, women in that day, they were entirely dependent on the men of Israel. The men were the ones who worked and generated wealth. They owned the land. They provided safety and security for their wives and mothers. They were the ones responsible for a family's existence, both physically and in the metaphysical sense. Now, all that to say, as a single woman in my 20s, I'm really glad that I don't live in ancient Israel. Unfortunately for Naomi, she was living in ancient Israel. And in the span of a decade, she had left her people and her home. She had moved to the land of her enemies. Her husband had died. Her sons had married Moabite women. And while those marriages weren't strictly prohibited in the law, Moabites were forbidden from entering the assembly of the Lord, which means that it probably was not a match made in heaven. Naomi's sons and their wives then struggled with infertility, and soon enough, 
both of her sons died. Naomi was left widowed and childless in a foreign land with no one to care for her and no one to sustain the existence of her family line. So honestly, I don't think we can blame her when she blames it all on God. We can't say for sure if God is the one who caused Naomi's suffering and pain, if he caused the famine or the death of the men, but we do know that God allowed it. He allowed it to happen. And throughout this chapter, we hear Naomi say, the Lord's hand has turned against me. The Almighty has made my life very bitter. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. I wonder if anyone here today can relate to Naomi a little bit. Because I'm sure that I am not the only one who is familiar with experiencing pain. You know, just a few months ago, I was telling a friend that it felt like life kept knocking me down. And as soon as I went to get back up, it knocked me down again. The moment that I realized I was at my lowest low was in Scotland, of all places. You know, I was there this summer with a couple of really good friends, and through a series of unfortunate events, I ended up locked out of our Airbnb with no key and no phone and no clue where my friends were. See, it was late at night, so I sat down on a bench in front of our apartment, and I allowed myself to think about the overwhelmingly long list of challenging life events that had preceded this trip overseas. But you don't need to have a whole laundry list of hard things to relate to Naomi's story. Maybe there's just one hard thing. But it's enough to feel like God isn't fighting for you. Like he isn't working all things together for good. Like he isn't present in the midst of all our pain. The good news though, is that Naomi's story includes a really big but. You guys are so much more mature than the eight-year-olds downstairs. Congrats. Naomi's story includes a big but because hard things happen and it can feel overwhelming and we might not understand it, but God is working in our pain. God is working in our pain. You see, immediately after we're told about all the suffering that Naomi is experiencing, we read verse 6. Verse 6 says that when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. This verse is the pivot point for the rest of the chapter. It signals to us that God is at work. Not only is he working by bringing an end to the famine and providing food for his people, but God is bringing Naomi back to the land of Judah. Now, unlike Naomi, we have the privilege of being able to read through to the end of the story. So we know that her return to Bethlehem not only means that she will be provided for physically with food and shelter and security, but returning to Bethlehem will ultimately lead to the survival of her family line, as well as renewed hope and trust in Yahweh, the God of Israel. 
all that Naomi lost will be restored to her in new and even greater ways. But she can't see that yet in verse 6. It's impossible for her to look beyond her pain and see God working, but we know that he is. And the same is true for each of us today. When we are in the middle of our pain, we often can't see exactly how God is working. He might feel distant or silent, or it may even feel like he's the one responsible for your suffering and affliction. It is often not in the moment, but when we look back, that we see that God is working in our pain. As I sat on that bench in Scotland, cursing my friends for abandoning me, and unintentionally causing a flood of emotions that I had been avoiding for the previous four months, God began to work, speaking truth to me and making me aware of his presence. Eventually, he also brought my friends back to me, and with that, he provided a key to get back into the apartment. But looking back now, I can see that God needed to bring me to that intense moment of pain so that I could begin to walk out of it. It was the wake-up call for me that has ultimately led to a lot of life changes, but at the time, I couldn't see that. It wasn't clear yet that God was and is working in our pain. Let's continue looking for God's hand at work in Naomi's story. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? In the following verses, Naomi then describes all the reasons why it would be a bad idea for Ruth and Orpah to follow her back to Bethlehem. Naomi's life is already over, since she's too old to have another husband or give birth to another child. But there's still hope for these two younger women. She tells them to return to their mother's house because Ruth and Orpah could still find a husband that will care for them, could still have children and grow their families. Really, Naomi's speech is a warning. She's telling her daughters-in-law, God is against me. If you come with me, your life may become as bitter as mine. And so Orpah listens to her mother-in-law. She makes the logical choice, and she kisses her mother-in-law goodbye. Through the character of Ruth, though, we will see not only that God is working in our pain, but God is working through his people. To really understand how God is working through Ruth, we need to brush up a little bit on our Hebrew vocabulary. See, in verse 8, Naomi is speaking a blessing over her daughters-in-law. And she says, may the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to me. And that word kindness has caused a lot of trouble for Bible translators for hundreds of years. 
The original word in Hebrew is hesed. And there is not a single word in any other language that can fully capture what hesed means. This one word encompasses the notions of covenantal loyalty, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, mercy, love, and compassion. It is an act performed for the benefit of a person in real and desperate need, in the context of a deep and enduring commitment between the people involved. Imagine with me an elderly couple who has been married for 54 years. They are deeply in love and deeply committed to each other. But eventually, the wife's health begins to deteriorate. Her body and mind are both beginning to fail her, and soon she can no longer take care of herself. So instead, the husband begins to care for his wife. He cooks all the meals and feeds her, washes her and gets her dressed, cares for the house, coordinates her visits with the doctor, reads books and sings to her, paints her fingernails. This is Hesed. It is a deep and abiding loyalty and commitment between the members of a covenant, a voluntary act of extraordinary mercy and generosity between spouses, siblings, friends, roommates, or any other committed relationship. Hesed is primarily understood throughout scripture as a characteristic of God, but we see through Ruth that God uses the hesed of human characters to show his own hesed. Once again, Naomi is urging Ruth to return to Moab, to go with Orpah back to her people and her gods. But Ruth responds with the words that would become a staple of wedding ceremonies 3,000 years later. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Ruth understood the implications of what she was saying here. She knew that it would be costly. She knew that it would mean leaving her people and journeying to a foreign land. She knew that the people of Israel may not accept a Moabite woman into their community. She knew that there was little chance Naomi would be able to provide for her. She knew that she would have to renounce the gods she worshipped to embrace Yahweh a God who so far had only displayed his judgment and brought affliction upon her family. Ruth knew all of this, and yet she still chose to return with Naomi to Bethlehem. This was an act of hesed that God would use to bring complete restoration to Naomi's family, even though that isn't completed until the end of chapter 4. What we see in this story is that the work of God doesn't always take the form of direct intervention, but it happens through the actions of human characters. God is working through the everyday actions of faithful people. This was true for Ruth, 
and it's true for us today. As we read the story, we're reminded to look for the ways that God is using the people around us to bring blessing, as well as to live in such a way that our own actions can be used by God to bless those around us. Today, we are invited both to see God's hand at work and to be God's hand at work. Again, returning to that bench in Scotland, when my friends finally found me, they were understandably a little bit alarmed, but then because they both have pastoral hearts, they listened to me and made me feel heard. They affirmed my hurts, they spoke words of healing, and they have been walking with me in that pain ever since. In my own life, just like in this first chapter of Ruth, I can trust that God is working in our pain. I know that God is working through his people. And finally, we will see that God is working to fulfill his promises. At the end of the chapter, Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem, which causes a little bit of a hubbub in the town. In particular, the women of Bethlehem are gossiping among themselves. Could this be Naomi, who departed from us so long ago? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. There is great irony in Naomi's statement here, saying that she went away full because she left Bethlehem in the midst of a famine. She says that God has brought her back empty, even though she's returning to the house of bread at the beginning of the barley harvest, and she is accompanied by Ruth. But of course, we understand where Naomi is coming from when she says this. We understand the pain she's experienced and the loss that she's endured. We also know that God has allowed this emptiness to come, but he has done so to bring fullness in a more significant way. God is going to use Naomi's suffering to fulfill a covenant promise that he made to all of Israel. To understand this though, we need to jump to the last verses of chapter four. So spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you how the story ends. But the ending of the story makes the beginning so much richer. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens in the middle. You know, Ruth meets a man named Boaz. Boaz is a solid 10. Naomi gives Ruth some unsolicited dating advice, which works remarkably well. Boaz and Ruth get married, and Ruth gives birth to a baby boy. There are some other important things that happen, but Amanda and Micah will tell you about that over the next two weeks. What matters for us today, though, is that Ruth had a son, and this son is called one of Naomi's descendants. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, 
the father of David. The text goes on to provide another genealogy that lists some other significant people who are part of the family line that led to David. And while genealogies are not typically a crowd favorite today, this particular genealogy accomplishes something really significant. These names show us that in the worst of times, during the period of the judges and in the midst of Naomi's greatest pain, God was quietly moving in the tragedies of a single family to prepare the way for the greatest king of Israel. This is the king who would unite the tribes of Israel into a single kingdom. The king who would usher in an era of stability, who would conquer enemies and accumulate wealth, who would prepare the way for God's temple to be built in Jerusalem. For Jews reading this text, it would have mattered to them that God used Naomi's suffering to fulfill his promise of Israel's most loved king. And for readers today, we know that it doesn't end with David. Because a thousand years later, Jesus was born into the same family line. A descendant of King David, Jesus would become the ultimate fulfillment of the promise that God made to each of us. A promise that he would make a way to rescue us from our sin, to defeat the brokenness of the world, to restore our relationship with him. In Jesus, we see the greatest act of hesed. Jesus is deeply in love with each of us and deeply committed to each of us. But he knew that our sin had separated us from God. He knew that we couldn't overcome the stronghold of sin, that the cost of our sin was too high a price for us to pay on our own. No matter how hard we tried, our own efforts would never have been enough. But Jesus volunteered. He performed an act of extraordinary mercy and generosity in coming to earth, living a perfect life, and dying a cruel death on the cross to pay the price for our sin. Jesus understood the cost. He understood what he would have to give up, the humiliation that he would face, the pain that he would endure. And even still, Jesus chose to pay the price. He surrendered his life because you were worth it. And for this act of hesed to be complete, you simply need to say yes to Jesus to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. But Naomi could have never known this. She couldn't understand the impact her story would have on the rest of human history. She never knew that God was using her suffering to fulfill his promise to save the entire world. And even though God isn't using our suffering to preserve a family line for the coming Messiah, 
we can be sure of the promise that God is working in our pain. God is working through his people. And God is working to fulfill the promises he has made throughout all of scripture. Maybe today, you feel like you're in the first five verses of Ruth 1. Maybe everything is going wrong and you can't catch a break and you're just waiting for the famine to be over. If that's where you are today, I'm sorry. I wish I could help you back to Bethlehem. I wish I could bring you to the barley harvest. I wish I could show you all the fullness you will experience in your chapter four. But we haven't made it to chapter four yet. We don't understand where God is. Maybe we can't see his hand in the midst of our suffering. But I can assure you that God is working. We see that through Naomi's story and in our own stories today. God is working in our pain through his people to fulfill his promises. I'm going to pray for us, and Derek will come up to lead us in a short time of response. But first, I want to encourage you that if you are facing something hard right now, or maybe many hard things, you don't need to be sitting on a bench in Scotland to find people to listen to you or to pray with you. Our prayer team is here today, and they're going to be waiting at the foot of the cross, both literally over here and figuratively at the foot of the cross. I hope that today is the day you choose to meet with them. Allow that team to be God's hand at work in the midst of your pain. Let's pray. God, I thank you for Naomi's story and for the way that you use her story to hold up a mirror for us, to help us to see, help us to see our own pain, our own suffering, but to show us that you are present, that you are present in our pain, you are working in our pain. Lord, open our eyes to the people around us who are ready and willing and excited to walk with us, to go on the journey from Moab to Bethlehem, and help us to be the people ready and willing to walk alongside others. Jesus, I thank you for the promise that you fulfilled in coming to earth and dying on the cross. Jesus, I thank you that we don't deserve it, that we couldn't earn it, but that you did it for us anyways. Yeah. Jesus, would you be speaking to hearts today? Help us to hear your voice.
Hey, and welcome back. Thanks for listening to this Sunday's message. We hope that we've helped you in your spiritual journey and that you're drawing closer to God. At Crosspoint, we gather on Sundays at 10 a.m. in Northeast Edmonton and throughout the week in something we love to call home groups. Home groups are encouraging and transformational communities for people just like you. We believe that the journey of faith is done together. So we hope that you'll connect with us at thecrosspointchurch.ca. Now, let me remind you of who you are. You are the people of God, called by God into his redemptive mission in the world. So be who you are.